Welcome to the Center for Ancient Christian Studies podcast. My name is Coleman Ford and I have my colleague here, Sean Wilhite. Uh, we're coming to you from San Diego, California, for the annual meeting of the Society of Biblical Literature. Uh, and with us today is our guest, Dr. Charles Hill. Now, Dr. Hill is the John R. Richardson Professor of New Testament and Early Christianity at Reformed Theological Seminary. Uh, Dr. Hill has published numerous journal articles and contributed articles to uh, other books as well. He is also the author of Regnum Kylorum, Patterns of Millennial Thought in the Early Church, uh, published by Erdmans. Uh, also, The Johannine Corpus in the Early Church by OUP, Oxford University Press. Uh, as well as from the Lost Teaching of Polycarp, which is uh, offered on more Cyback, and uh, a few other texts as well, uh, which we uh, hope to interact with you. So, uh, Dr. Hill, thanks for being with us. My pleasure. Yeah, thanks yeah. for having me. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, if you, if you wouldn't mind just kind of starting us off here, uh, some of your publications are in, you know, early Christian mm-hmm. Christian texts, uh, either ranging from textual criticism or ranging from early gospel studies. But we would just kind of love to hear a testimonial. How did you How did you stumble upon this? Maybe give a little bit of your personal journey. Are there key thinkers, key key figures over the years that kind of helped you stumble into this as a as a career? Mm. Well, I suppose going back to uh, fairly early on in my Christian life, uh, well, someone <clears throat> someone close to me joined a. Uh, uh, a small group, a sect, you might say, that had as its as one of its main ideas that uh, uh, the church basically drove off a cliff after the apostles, you know, and so they, you know, the early church went awry in a big way. <clears throat> and then uh, over the years, uh, you know, very very soon after that, I would run into other other people who would claim, well. Our view is is supported by the early church fathers. Their their view was our view, and it was a little bit later that the church went off. Let's say with Origen and other people. Uh, so those kinds of things really intrigued me about the the early church and what actually happened then. Who were these people? I think it was not until I was in college or just about out of college when I picked up a copy of Eusebius's Church History and started reading, and I was just fascinated by that. And uh, ended up trying to trying to get uh, you know the Antonicene fathers set you know one by one because I couldn't write the whole thing. But as I as I read those, I I, I just I just sort of fell in love with. Uh, those early authors and what they were trying to do, it, it was just so interesting to me to see the immediate fruits of the New Testament revelation and the effects that Christ had you know, in, that, in that culture, in that Hellenistic uh, uh, culture around, in and around uh, the Mediterranean and so that, I think it was just from very early on, and then I guess when I got to seminary and started reading theology and reading, uh, doing exegesis, it, it seemed to me that some of the, the best New Testament scholars were the ones that were also, also patristic scholars. Mm-hmm. I mean, you had uh, J.B. Lightfoot and uh, you know Westcott and Hort and. Zahn and Harnack and and others, uh, particularly people of that era, these these great minds, uh, they were great New Testament scholars. But they were also patristic scholars, 
And it just seemed to me that uh, more contemporary scholars, most of them didn't have that kind of expertise. They, they were not able to, to bridge the two. And that, I don't know, that was always an ideal for me that I, I thought needed to be brought back. So I guess those, those major things for me, uh, just that I was fascinated by it, and I didn't, uh, I thought that study of the, of the early church would, uh, could only <clears throat> enhance and deepen your understanding of the New Testament and what happened in the, in the, in the originating years. So uh, I remember even applying to PhD programs and asking my seminary professor, well, what if I, what if I did a study, and if I did a dissertation in the early church, could I get a job uh, teaching New Testament? And, I guess the consensus sort of was, well, yeah, it's it's possible, you know, it, but it, it it just means that if you do that, you kind of, in a sense, start out behind. If you you're behind your New Testament colleagues in a way because you're not saturated with this New Testament study. But I think in the long run, it's it's going to be a great boom. It's going to be a great bonus. It's going to be. Uh, it's just one of the best preparations you can have. So uh, I don't see the, the two as competing in any way. Uh, even though most of my writing has been in the early church, right. post-New Testament, uh, most of it, uh, yeah, to me, that's not at all in competition to what right. I teach. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's encouraging to hear. And I, I would, we would love to come back to kind of that yeah. that identity if, if we can. Um, but maybe talk talk to us a little bit about uh, your time at Cambridge. What 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 was it in Cambridge that uh, maybe talk a little bit about your dissertation? Kind of what was it there that really helped spawn on some more ideas regarding mm -hmm. uh, your love and kind of deepening the interest for Christian literature or ancient Christian right. literature? Yeah. Well, I mean, a place like Cambridge is uh, really ideally suited for these kinds of interests. It seemed to me just because of their their long history, mm -hmm. uh, where mm -hmm. early Christian studies. They may not have called it that, but when you when you did New Testament, uh, you're you're doing it in the, in the shadow of, of Lightfoot and Westcott and Horton, and so it's it was a great place to be. It was it was like you know going you know, it's like Alice in Wonderland when you get there uh, with uh, the number of books per capita you know in place. And it was like. You kind of felt like you were on the top of the world because it, everybody eventually comes through to you know to study or to uh, to give a lecture or whatever. So it was a, it was a great place to study. Just just wonderful. Yeah, I had I, I had a real blessing. I had kind of the best of both worlds because uh, after my first year, my supervisor got a job in Oxford. He was mm. starting at Cambridge. He was at, went, went to Oxford as Lady Margaret Professor there. Mm. And uh, so he was willing to keep me on. So mm. I had, I was at Cambridge, but I did supervisions in Oxford. Wow. Mm. Right. So I'd go back and forth and, and uh, you know, could use the bodily and, and everything else. Mm. So those were, those were really, really great days. Mm. 
Yeah, and our first child was born over there. Yeah, so, that's okay. right. Yeah, that's that's wonderful. Good yeah, memories. Yeah, 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 yeah. Very good. Yeah. yeah. Now you mentioned uh, passing your supervisor and uh, moving on mm-hmm. and. Um, yeah, something I think is really helpful as we talk to people and get to know them as a scholar, as a person, is to get to know the person that shaped them, that made them who they are in, in a certain respect. So could you tell us about that experience? Maybe your advisor, the things that he or she shaped in you and how that individual really made you who you are as a scholar, some things that you may see that are a part of you that mm. you see in them? Well, that's a good question. Uh, yeah, my supervisor was uh, a little-known patristic scholar named uh, Rowan Williams. <clears throat> Just kidding there. Yeah, yeah, yeah of course. <laughs> yeah. He, uh, yeah, obviously, he, he started out as a scholar before he became uh, bishop and then archbishop of, of Canterbury. Uh, even when I knew him, people were <clears throat> people used the genius word uh, for him, and, and uh, we're talking about future archbishop. But he was, uh, and still is, I trust, a very humble man, a very humble scholar. I mean, you may think what you what you want about uh, you know things about his personal views or what happened during his uh, uh, archbishopric, but. I, it, to me, he was a, he was just an excellent supervisor. Mm-hmm. Uh, people have you know horror stories about their supervisors mm-hmm. and how they were either uh, onerous or uh, so so aloof that they hardly knew what the what the supervisor was thinking. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I felt that uh, Rowan was you know kind of a golden mean. He was very attentive <clears throat> to what I wrote gave me positive feedback, would send me to this or that other person or a seminar to, to go work with that person for a little while. And, um, we always had, I, I thought, productive uh, supervisions together, just sort of the right uh, hands-on, hands-off mm-hmm. approach. And as I said, he was just, as a, uh, as a scholar, he was just, I mean, he had an amazing mind, has an amazing mm-hmm. mind. And he was so humble about it. I think that that impressed me mm-hmm. to know him. Mm-hmm. There were there were a few people like that that I, that I encountered. Uh, I got to uh, well, I wouldn't say I really got to know very well, but I, I knew uh, Henry Chadwick mm-hmm. while I was there. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, he was, it was the same same thing. Mm-hmm. This this man of monumental learning. Mm-hmm. Right. But. Uh, you know, almost uh, self-deprecating right. and uh, mm. uh, sense of humor. Mm-hmm. So, mm. yeah, that's great. Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah. So, you know, the six degrees of separation game. That's right. So yes, we I now do. know Rowan Williams. And two degrees. And, yeah, oh, my daughter. And Henry no, that's yeah, right. Yeah. Good. Good. Thank you. My daughter during the last royal wedding. Oh, I was there we go. On Facebook, that she was like two degrees away there we from go. Kate and Will. Yes. Yeah, because, there you go. Because she knew. Yeah. Because her dad knows the man who married them. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that. That's yeah, good. Yeah. That's, that's great. Mm-hmm. That's so great. Mm-hmm. Oh, 
um, if, if we can, maybe just turn a corner a little, a little bit in our, in our conversation. Uh, I just want to talk a little bit about your, your writing projects. Uh, I have with us uh, the early texts of the New Testament, edited by you and, and also Michael Kruger. Uh, it's published by OUP, and just want for our listeners, this is a, this is a text really to be to be aware of, and thankfully, uh, OUP has now put this out in a paperback form which has really made this more accessible for personal libraries, um, and especially those that have an interest in text criticism. Uh, more affordable. Yeah, yes, it's yes. much more <laughs> much more affordable. And so I would love to hear just the journey of this book. You know, how did you and, and Michael Kruger um, come about wanting to be editors of this book and maybe some of the journey that uh, you guys were able to go on? <clears throat> yeah, I think it was something like a seven-year journey uh, from our first <clears throat> first conversations about the idea for the book and uh, it's it's been a real blessing to uh, to work with Mike to know Mike we uh, found out that we shared very similar interests and uh, he's at one RTS campus I'm at, at another but but uh, we found out we, we shared these interests and had a number of conversations one thing that, that really uh, kind of disturbed us was the sort of unanimity that, that, that there's, there seemed to be at that time among scholars saying that the early transmission of the New Testament text was wild or free or chaotic. Uh, you know, those kinds of adjectives were used. <clears throat> and this seemed to be trickling down from a few scholars into, you might say, a very, a very general mood among New Testament scholars who were not necessarily text critics, but, you know, they have to depend on the text critics. So that, that intrigued us, that idea of then, why don't we, why don't we try to assemble some real experts and, and do a detailed assessment of the earliest manuscripts that we have and see if, if, that, if that critical assessment really holds true or not. So that was really the, the genesis of it. We started thinking then about you know who we could ask, and um, yeah, it it like as I said, took about seven years to, to develop and finally get finally get published. But we were really happy with the result. Really happy yeah. with the the people that we were able to assemble. Mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> so I think it makes uh, a real contribution. As you guys know, the first part has uh, sort of introductory kinds of articles about just about book production and circulation uh, in the period and, and uh, how Christians viewed the copying process and so forth and, and a couple chapters on the actual sort of realia of the manuscripts themselves. And then we have the largest section where where scholars are taking either individual books or corpuses and uh, looking at the earliest witnesses and uh, trying to determine if they're kind of wild all over the place, if they're sort of stable and uh, from a normal or a strict text. Uh, in a sense, we, we had to borrow uh, the Alon's categories of sort of uh, free, normal, uh, strict, that, those kinds of uh, categories, which not everybody will agree with. Uh, 
uh, those classifications. But it's sort of interesting. If, if you're going to characterize the early transmission process as free, mm-hmm. you have to have a classification. So you have right. to have something to compare with right. to say that. Right. So people who say that generally sort of borrow from the Alans this category of uh, it was a free text. Right. But uh, then they don't want to often. They often don't want to talk about the fact that, uh, as I think we've we've shown in the book. Uh, if you tried to generalize about the early transmission process, it is not free and wild. There are certain texts that you might label that, but that's not the majority. The majority are in the good or, or strict category, according to the way the, the, the Alans looked at it. And of course, um, they're, they're comparing with uh, well, essentially, what was the, the NA-27, which is based on the 4th century, 4th and 5th century uncles and all that. But, uh, anyway, that, that's, that's the general outline in the last, uh, last portion of the book as uh, follow-up articles on the 2nd century uh, quotations and use and allusions to uh, New Testament, what, what we can glean from that. Yeah, and it's it's just been tremendously helpful. So there's a few of us that have been work, that have worked through it in times past, able to to review this for uh, Midwestern Journal, and it was just a great read. Loved it. Uh, but it's been Good. two years, yeah. and so I, I'm curious to know what's been what's been the fallout, maybe, mm-hmm. or what has been the contribution, mm-hmm. what has been. Um, you know, kind of what yeah. has been the conversation since this text? Right. Well, I would have to say there hasn't been enough conversation yet. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I think. There, there have been a number of reviews, mostly short and I think uh, mostly quite positive. Yeah. Uh, one was a little less positive by uh, David Parker. Uh, when, and I would, I would say that it seems to me he... He perhaps had a notion in mind of what the book was going to be, and uh, the book really wasn't that. I mean, that's not what we were trying to do. Uh, I think he had maybe a few misconceptions about what we were trying to do in the book, if I may say that. Um, but yeah, generally it's been it's been positive. We've had a uh, a few people comment <clears throat> make comments such as. Uh, <clears throat> They try to pick up a theological bent in the book, which, of course, is not illegitimate to do. Um, I think some some people try to be on the very much on the lookout for that. Um, but you know, you can um, you can certainly talk about theological bents. I, I'd be very happy to do that. But I mean, anybody who looks at it would see that we. In terms of the authors that we tried, that we got, uh, a number of them are evangelicals, and that's because, happily, a lot of evangelicals are doing really good work in textual criticism mm-hmm. these days. But it's not just evangelicals. We have a number of uh, Roman Catholic authors, and, uh, and some you would have to, you'd have to put in a, uh, a critical category, you might say, a critical liberal category. So we, we really tried to get a broad spectrum of scholars to participate. Um, and 
really a lot of most of the chapters you read through, they're, they're very, as you know, they're very technical, the ones that are dealing with the, the papyri themselves. Uh, so they, there, there's really no overarching theological bent to the book. Uh, anybody will use it with, with a lot of profit, and that's what we were, we were hoping to find. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, if I could ask a similar question, um, going back to your book, uh, Regnum Calorum, you know, the reception mm-hmm. of that's been a few years now. Yeah. Um, and yeah. anything that you, going back, um, you know, you received maybe you know, positives and negatives. Um, I know I've personally been able to use that book and really be blessed by that book and refer to that book. Oh, thanks. But also had some that I know from a circle uh, previously that pushed back on it and uh, mm-hmm. just wanted to kind of get your thoughts on that and um, how some of the thing, how some of those criticisms were received and maybe you know, how you would have responded to some of those things. Namely, you know, kind of a, a absence of premillennial things in the new in the early church and kind of seeing more uh, push towards a, a less literal kind of millennial um, understanding of the church. And that's been a, a criticism that's been um, pushed back on a certain uh, few people. Yeah. Right. Yes. And I haven't seen that uh, very much of that uh, criticism actually in print. Mm-hmm. I know. Okay. It, I know okay. it's been out there. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's that's but, something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I haven't. I haven't uh, been able to respond to it in, in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think overall, I've been very pleased with the, the positive mm-hmm. reception of mm-hmm. of that book. Mm-hmm. That was. Um, that was a really, I mean, that, that was my dissertation, pre work dissertation. Yeah. Uh, there was a first edition, and for the second edition, I added uh, a couple chapters, and uh, it was it was really fascinating to write, really enjoyable to write, because you had the kind of the joy of discovery. Uh, that's that's the funnest thing about research, you know, when, when you find things that aren't well explored and well uh, overrun with secondary literature. But yeah, that so that was a, a great um, uh, feeling of discovery for me to find that there were these patterns of eschatological thinking in the early church that really did seem to have deep roots in in the Jewish literature, the Second Temple literature. But we see that this you know shifts certain shifts in uh, in Christianity. You know, in, in eschatology, and I think that sort of the, getting down to a very basic thing about that book mm-hmm. is that uh, eschatologies were more unified than we think of them. We, we it's sort of systematic in our systematics, we think of uh, individual eschatology and then global or uh, you know world eschatology, uh, and we don't really connect them. But yeah. they were more connected mm-hmm. in the ancient world, mm-hmm. <clears throat> such that. Uh, you know, there was a very uh, prominent view within Judaism of the, the soul after death, um, soul after death going to Hades or going to Sheol, and uh, resting there, remaining there until the time of resurrection. And in the Jewish scheme, usually that that time was after whatever whatever golden age there might be that God might have for uh, for His people on Earth. But the resurrection was was after that. So you had a sort of a logic of you know, death and and, uh, and and rest until the body and re- reuniting with the body for the for the life everlasting, the resurrection. And uh, I, I just see that just a major shift 
in the new te- new revelation in Christ. Mm-hmm. When when Christ uh, says, "I go to prepare a place for you," mm-hmm. and when He says to the thief on the cross, yeah. "Today you will be with me in paradise." Mm-hmm. When when Paul says to be present with the body is absent from the Lord present with the Lord is absent from the body. Mm-hmm. He says, I desire to, to depart and be with Christ. Mm-hmm. That is far better. And when he says uh, that you know, nothing, even even death, will uh, can separate us from the love of Christ. Mm-hmm. Throughout the New Testament, we have this transformed eschatological hope of being with Christ right. after death. Mm-hmm. And that is just not... That, 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 that's just not there in Second Temple Judaism. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, you have certain developments going off in a sort of a Hellenistic direction that tend to bypass anything bodily in terms of bodily resurrection. But that's, that's not the Christian. The Christian view in the New Testament is mm-hmm. to depart and be with Christ. And yet, there is a day coming when uh, when the dead will rise, and there there is a resurrection of the body and uh, a life everlasting. So, going along with that 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 shift, I think, is this uh, this understanding of being being with Christ. And uh, when Christ returns, we are with Him. And when Christ returns, that's the end. I mean, that's that's the that's the momentous shift to the new heavens and new earth. Mm-hmm. That I saw as a as a a consistent, more or less consistent eschatology from the New Testament mm-hmm. and through the throughout the early church. Now, that was not the only eschatology, as, as uh, you well know. There was a, a chiliastic uh, in, impulse. Uh, that I think does have deep Jewish roots in the, in the period. And it was, a, in a sense, a sort of a natural thing for a lot of Christians to, in, in interacting with Jews, to uh, uh, sort of inherit or want to inherit that, that legacy. So, you know, you do have, uh, from quite early on, this, this other, this premillennial or chiliastic tendency in early, in early Christianity. But one of the things I was... was uh, wanted to say is that uh, this, despite a lot of a lot of polemical literature, it was not all premillennial. Mm-hmm. You know, in the early church, the early church was not all premillennial. Mm-hmm. In fact, I I think indisputably there's a lot of uh, non-millennialism in the early church. More people would dispute the fact that I would say that's the New Testament eschatology, of course, but but. Uh, you know, what was really exciting was to see that there were these patterns that seemed to be uh, quite consistent, you know, more than you, you usually find in historical study. Well, I appreciate that. That's a helpful uh, perspective. And again, it's um, that and, and this, as well as, you know, seeing this in, in other works that you've contributed to and, and published. Um, it's been a real blessing, so I appreciate yeah, that. Right. And thanks for mm. thanks for some uh, encouraging words on that and, and spiritual words. I appreciate that. Well, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know. So I think as we uh, even just think about the purpose of the center, uh, things that we like to promote as far as scholarship, but also encouraging students of the scriptures, students of Christian history and Christian literature. Um, you know, what are some things that you have seen, some trends maybe, um, within evangelicalism um, as far as uh, ancient Christian studies go? And then maybe what are some holes, some deficiencies, maybe some 
overstepping or not quite going far enough? I mean, hopefully that's not too hmm. uh, vague of a question, but just some things that you've seen that we could do better or maybe we need to rein it in a little bit. Any thoughts hmm. on that? Well, that's, that, that gives me quite a, uh, quite a latitude. Okay, <laughs> yeah. Maybe thinking oh, more yeah. early church studies. Yeah. And, well, I mean, I, yeah. I think that uh, something that has been sort of a... Oh, I don't know. Uh, Allure, and for many people, maybe something fearful is the, the fact that uh, the early church is sort of an unknown world. Uh, once we get past the, the New Testament, I think it'll, in a, many corners of evangelicalism, there's not been very much emphasis on our our historical rootage. That uh, we are connected all the way through. And so, because of that, I think a lot of a lot of people who who start to study and get interested in study have a sort of a, a fear of this because we might we think, well, that's the province of the Roman Catholics or the Greek Orthodox, and there's this fear of you know we, we may we may go that direction, and, and indeed that has happened in a number many many cases. I think. Uh, it's all very uh, well. It, it's unfortunate that we that we have that view because I think we we really ought to un- understand that there is a, a deep and fundamental unity of the faith mm-hmm. all the way through, mm-hmm. and we as Protestants uh, have have nothing to uh, nothing to fear in. In, in studying these people, studying them as our brothers and sisters in Christ. And uh, that doesn't mean, of course, we need to adopt everything that they, they believed. But there, there is this, this kinship, this communion of the saints. Uh, it really is a you know, statement of faith, you might say, to, uh, to, to believe that and, and to study these folks. Uh, so I think that maybe there's been there's been uh, I don't know this, this sense if the, if I go that way I'm just going to become more uh, sacerdotal or, or whatever. Uh, you know, it just it doesn't, it doesn't need to happen. To. It doesn't have yeah. to happen. Yeah. It's certainly true that we can we can always become more appreciative. You know, we right. can learn to appreciate right. uh, differences and learn to appreciate how things started. You know, mm-hmm. we can start to see how how. Papal infallibility got started, and how how uh, notions of purgatory got started, and things like that, and penance, and, and all these things. Um, but I think there's 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 so much that unites us with them, and I, I see. I think that uh, one area where where uh, evangelicals, in particular, ought to focus is simply on scripture and scripture centrality in the early church. Uh, virtually all theology was scriptural theology. It was a reflection on scripture. And that that gives us a real a real in a real point of solid contact with with the fathers. 
the commentaries, the, the, the homiletic material, just the, all the theologizing, the anti-heretical material. You know, ultimately, these, these folks are trying to work out the implications of the revelation having Christ in, in the scriptures. So, I, I mean, I just think there's, and maybe because Protestants have not been so uh, deeply engaged in this, this is an emphasis that has been glossed over a bit. Uh, we think of other things when we think of the, the early patristic period, and uh, that, that really uh, shouldn't be. So. Uh, there's so much work, I think, to be done, I think Mike Kruger would agree with me, on simply understanding the rise of the canon. Mm -hmm. uh, a, a lot of, I don't know, sloppy work has been done over the years mm -hmm. in that area. There's a lot more to be done in terms of the, the text of the New Testament, as you guys are finding out. Uh, we're sort of entering into a, a renaissance time, I think, of manuscript studies, because more and more has come to light, and in the internet age, more and more is becoming public, so that uh, you don't have to travel, you know, all over libraries in Europe to look at things. Uh, things are so much more accessible these days, and so there's a lot of work to be done just on retrieving the texts and uh, analyzing them, and uh, you know, embedding them into the story of the Bible, how we got the Bible. So there's a lot of work to be done there. A lot of work just to be done on scriptural exposition, and thankfully that has started to be to be done in, in a couple of series, especially that have started to be published of uh, you know, patristic exegesis. But a lot of lot more work needs to be done there, and work on uh, just additions. Uh, there are a lot of works, patristic works that have never been translated, or if they if they are, are they're very old translations. Uh, just critical editions of patristic works, and of course, of course, when you get into uh, the fourth century, you have a lot of uh, theology, you know, uh, fundamental theology, theological works uh, to plumb. So, yeah, I just see it as a, a very wide open field. Yeah, that's yeah, that's, that's great. That's I appreciate that encouragement. Yeah, and we. Um, and again, yeah, that's that's a very fundamental facet of the things that we're trying to promote, and uh, appreciate you uh, yeah. coming alongside and saying that as well. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you know, I think uh, another perspective we've had, uh, you know, just kind of as we're thinking about helping pastors think through this theologically, historically, things like this. Um, if you were to sit down with a pastor and, and give them some advice on where to go, what to do, how to incorporate some of these things into their the life of the pastor, the, the preparation. Um, if you had a couple minutes just to point into some things, maybe some practices to inhabit in regards to this, what would you say? Well, again, thankfully, we, we, we have a number of publications these days that make that make uh, the fathers more accessible, you know, even more so than 10, 15, 20 years ago. So uh, even online, you know, we, without without buying books. So I would just encourage pastors to do a little dabbling, you know, if they and and maybe pick pick a certain writer, pick uh, Augustine, pick uh, Jerome, um, start reading. Uh, Irenaeus or Tertullian. Uh, 
I try to encourage my students, you know, that every seminary student needs to have a copy of the Apostolic Fathers, at least, mm-hmm. and familiarize yourself with the Apostolic Fathers mm-hmm. and what happened uh, in the immediate aftermath mm-hmm. of the New Testament revelation. So I, I think that will, that will round out and help inform uh, your, your study of the Bible and your preaching. It, um, it can be spiritually uplifting. There's so much in the early church. One, one aspect that I've mentioned is the, the whole uh, aspect of persecution and, uh, and martyrdom. That there's so much out of that literature that is of great encouragement and uh, will help to help to give us, uh, you know, backbone. You might say for the for the struggles that we face these days. I just find I just find the early martyrological material so uh, inspiring to read through. Uh, so you'll, you'll find a lot, you'll find, of course, a lot that you think is a little bit whimsical and way off base, but you'll also find, uh, I think, a real kinship with, with uh, most of the patristic authors that you read, too. So uh, it's always a matter of, of uh, making sound judgments, but I think, but I think most pastors will be very edified and find their, their preaching and teaching enriched. They delve into the fathers. Right. That's yeah. good. Yeah. I would like to maybe return to an item that you mentioned a little bit earlier on as, as we we're talking. Uh, you, if, if we look at your publications, we see, you know, some early church writings. We see uh, text criticism writings, and in, mm-hmm. in, in the, in the, in, in, as it intersects with patristic yeah. studies. But as you're, as you're teaching at Reformed Theological Seminary, you're a New Testament professor. And so maybe maybe just for some of our listeners who are trying to figure out, where do I go? I, I, I have interest right. in New Testament or even Old Testament. Um, yeah. But I have great interest in patristic literature. Yeah. Um, where do they go? You know, how have you wrestled through that identity, both as a scholar, as a person, as a teacher? I just love to hear hear, hear, right. how, hear, right. hear how you have wrestled with that. Yeah. Well, if you like having a double life, you know, like a, <laughs> sort of a secret life that nobody knows about, right? It's it's kind of a nice, okay. nice niche. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, as, as you know as well, even in teaching in a seminary. Uh, most of our seminaries are not so well funded that we can have patristic faculties, right? Mm-hmm. So we're Old Testament, New Testament, we're systematics, we're historical theology, practical theology. And so you, you that's that's the curriculum. Um, you know, I am I am overjoyed that I, I get the opportunity to teach the New Testament. I mean it's not like I'm, I'm unhappy that I'm not mm-hmm. teaching more mm-hmm. uh, patristic uh, courses. Mm-hmm. Um, I just I just don't see them as as competing. Now, for somebody somebody uh, who's who's just entering into the study or maybe entering a PhD or doing a PhD, uh, I know that that can be kind of tough because you really feel like you're focusing one place and you have interests elsewhere. I would just encourage patience. Mm-hmm. 
and think of think of the long run and think of your think of a, a possible long career uh, and just, just think of your your time of training as extending way beyond your PhD years because there's only so much that you can do uh, but if you get grounded as, as well as you can in one or the other whatever it is you're doing that's kind of going to be a springboard going to be a a foundation for you. So, I mean, I would stress that people spend a lot of time in the languages. Uh, learn the languages as best you can. Uh, spend a lot of time in the sources, the primary sources. Uh, it, it, it's hard slogging for a long time, and you may feel like you're not being real productive, and the push is always going to be, especially if, you're, if you do go into academia, pushes to publish. Uh, but uh, I think that um, your, 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 your teaching and your writing will be much more mature and much more helpful, much, uh, much more solid, the better grounding that you have in these areas. So those, those are real, real basics. Uh, yeah, and I, like I said before, for me, I've always had this kind of ideal of uh, J.B. Lightfoot or, or Zahn or the, these, these great 19th and early 20th century polymaths who are sort of an ideal of uh, those who bridged both worlds. And there's, there, there's really no antithesis there. So whether you end up, you know, doing going one direction or the other, I mean, I, I always um, don't tell any New Testament scholars this, but <laughs> I always felt when I when I palled around with with the patristics buddies that uh, these were the guys who were really learned. <laughs> uh, they knew a lot because they, they knew they knew the Bible and they knew the early church. Uh, it's not a knock in any, in any way on New Testament scholars, but just because of the, the, the way the discipline has developed, it has become so ingrown that you end up studying not just the, the primary text, but you're studying a load and load and loads of, of secondary literature. And you sort of have to know, you know, so-and-so's take on so-and-so, who had a take on so-and-so, who had a take on Paul. And there's, it's, it just has gotten, gotten very ingrown. Mm -hmm. So I think for, that, that's one other thing about patristic literature is it's, it's not so overrun with secondary literature. It's becoming that way more and more, but, but um, you really have, if you do New Testament, strictly New Testament, you know, you just should read around it, because I know you'll, you'll get that instruction anywhere you go. Right. No, that's, yeah, that's wonderful. And, uh, and may, maybe just one final question. And uh, Coleman and I just have great interest in students, seeing their, their, their growth and virtue, trying to build community, trying to gather other like-minded students, uh, and, and just trying to cast a bigger vision, of which, you know, we're trying to listen to those that are above us that are casting the broader vision. Um, 
and uh, we, we have concern for their virtue, for their intellect, and it's we're, we're trying to envision a whole person that engages scholarship. So not only their, their, their morals, um, and, but as well as their intellect. Maybe just, just if you can, if you were to have two minutes with a PhD student, if you were to have two minutes with an MDiv student, an MA student that was getting ready to go off into PhD studies, what would be the two minutes worth of wisdom that you would that you would want to give mm, to them? Mm, well, certainly you want to uh, you want to stay grounded. You want to if if you are. If you are married, take care of that marriage. Mm. Uh, of course, don't sacrifice your marriage and your family, and above all, don't sacrifice your your daily walk with God, your your devotional life, your your church life. Mm. You know, get connected with a community of Christians, get connected with a church. Mm. Uh, whether you actually have a some kind of ministry in the church or not, uh, stay stay integrally connected. It will. It will help to ground you. There are so many things that can happen in uh, in academic study, and so that that is that's crucially important. So to keep first things first, uh, and in terms then of the of the academics itself. Well, uh, again, see, see see all of your work as as devotionally uh, as a devotion to God. Um, that you're doing this as a out of a sense of calling. If you're particularly if you're if you're doing this as a Christian, as you're doing this uh, in, in terms of something that might be your vocation. Either in the, in, in pastoral ministry, in academic ministry, or a combination of both, uh, I think you really need to see this as your calling. And if, if you don't, then it's not it's not something you should undertake because the rigors are are great and uh, the pitfalls are there. Um, but it's it's going to be that that sense of calling. This is what I'm supposed to do. That at, at times will carry you through. Um, you know, and as you. As you get ready to do this, uh, you know, spend a lot of time in just grounding in the basics, your, your basic theology, your, your doctrine of Scripture, your doctrine of God. I, I used to tell people what I, what I found most challenged doing PhD study was your doctrine of God and your doctrine of Scripture. Um, those are going to be tested all the time. So... Uh, Make sure, make sure you, you tend to all those things, and then the, the academic basics of language study and spending time in the sources. Uh, don't take anybody's word for it. Uh, just form your own judgments and become a conversation partner with with the experts. Don't just don't just write something that's you know dependent upon the experts. And I think that will send you good stead for a long, for, yeah. for the years, you know, for a career. Right. Uh, the best works, I think, are the, those that are that are truly um, just grounded and married to the sources, come out of them, flow out of them. Yeah, well, thank you for that encouragement. And um, again, I'm sure that will be well received. And uh, it spoke to me, so I do appreciate that. And, um, um, thank you for the pastoral insight as well. Yeah, with the academics. So that's helpful, right? Yeah, right. All right.
Well, uh, again, thank you for joining us, Dr. Hill, for this time yeah. and sharing insight, sharing some wisdom, and also uh, some anecdotes as well. Yeah. And uh, good to know that we're close to the king, or the queen, rather. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right. Right, right, yeah, right. That's, that's, right. Yeah. that's right. Yeah, any any advice you need, uh, you want me to pass on. Okay, uh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Either way. I'll send you an email. On yeah. Um, well, thank you guys. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I really am excited about what you guys are doing. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. Very encouraging. Yep, yeah. yep. Well, again, this is the uh, podcast for the Center for Ancient Christian Studies, coming to you from the Society, the annual meeting of the Society of Biblical Literature here in San Diego, 2014, uh, with Dr. Chuck Hill of Reformed Theological Seminary. So thanks again, and we'll see you next time.